You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. family and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection and meditation from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Uh, Bishop Sheen will be speaking about prayer today, and I'm sure if he was alive today, he would be telling us all to continue to pray, uh, especially the holy hour, to spend an hour with our Lord each day if possible. Uh, and I uh, think not only of prayer, of course, he was a great lover of the Eucharist, great lover of Our Lady and the Rosary, uh, but of course he was a man that uh, was big on freedom and uh, preached freedom. He's one of the original freedom fighters, I like to say. And so his uh, address today will be on freedom, and it comes from his television series, Life is Worth Living, from the 1950s. And we're going to continue on in our catechism series. Of course, we're on lesson number 49, uh, and this uh, topic is on prayer today. So looking forward to today's broadcast. So let us begin in prayer, as we always do, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, a mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please enjoy this reflection on freedom from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. We received some interesting stories about children during the past week. It seems that uh, a few weeks ago we gave two talks on alcoholism, and after the first one we announced that the second one would be on the same subject. The following week, as we were about to begin, this little child called the mother saying, Mommy, Mr. Alcoholism is on again. <laughs> and we also heard from Chicago that they were announcing forthcoming productions on television, and they flashed an announcement of the Racket Squad. And then do you know what followed? My picture. <laughs> And last week, we spoke on uh, juvenile delinquency, and shortly after the telecast, we received a telephone call here at the theater. It seems that four men were in this particular bar. They ordered four beers, and they were looking at our show. 
And as they were looking at it, the first one took a drink and spat it out. And the second one did the same, and the third and the fourth. And finally, the spokesman of the fourth said to the bartender, he says, what's the idea? This isn't beer, this is root beer. <laughs> and the bartender said, listen, as long as you're looking at that man, that's all you get. We're not going to have any delinquent fathers in here. <laughs> Well, if those men are back in that bar tonight, let me tell them tonight I'm talking on freedom. Order your beers, boys. <laughs> well, freedom is a word that's very often used and not very often understood. As a matter of fact, freedom has two sides. One is freedom from something. Namely, from constraint and force. The other is the freedom for something. Namely, a goal or a purpose. This is concerned with means. This is concerned with ends and destiny. This is the bridge. This is the city. And the two must always go together. You cannot have a freedom from something without a goal or a purpose or a perfection. I heard of a rich man who went up to a taxi driver. He said to the taxi driver, are you free? The taxi driver said, yes, I'm free. The rich man left shouting, a raw for freedom. <laughs> In other words, what's the use of being free unless you've got some destiny, some perfection? Now, let me show you how the two go together. Suppose you were going to take a trip. You are free to choose all your means. You must be free from constraint to take a train, free from force to take a plane, free from violence to walk. You may choose any means that you please. But you certainly ought to have a freedom for something or to be going someplace. Otherwise, you'd be just like a ship at sea without a rudder and without a port. You are free, for example, to choose any particular vocation you want in life. Follow any profession. Doctor, lawyer, musician, linguist. Makes no difference which. You ought to be free from constraint in order to do that. But once you decide on it, for example, you decide to become a linguist, the specialist in foreign languages, then you have a different kind of freedom. The more you study the syntax, the more you obey the laws of grammar, the more you subject yourself to correct vocabulary, know the tenses and genders and so forth, the more free you are to speak that particular language. You go into a restaurant to order food. Ever notice that when you go in, what you want is always scratched out? <laughs> you go in to order food, you can choose anything you please. But certainly your freedom from constraint, the waiter doesn't ram a dish down your throat, the purpose of it, the perfection of the choice, certainly is health. Therefore, the two, freedom from and freedom for, always go together. Now let us see what is happening to freedom in the modern world. There has been a divorce. That which God has joined together let no man put asunder. 
And these great dualities which God joins, such as body and soul and husband and wife, are sometimes divorced and disjoint. And this negative and positive freedom are also divorced in our modern world. With the result that today the freedom from something or the choice has been separated and divorced from the freedom for or perfection or goal or destiny. This is the error of Western civilization. Modern Western civilization has identified freedom with freedom from constraint and it denies goals and purposes and ends. Communism, on the contrary, has this kind of freedom, law, order, perfection, but without a freedom of choice. Why these two must always go together? I think a perfect example of how they go together is courtship. Suppose a young man is, is uh, proposing to a young woman. And he says, I want to marry you. I freely choose you out of every, every woman in New York. And she says, well, how do you know that you love me? Have you, uh, have you asked the 785,932 other eligible young women in New York? <laughs> now, if he's a good metaphysician, as he makes his proposal, and the proposal, incidentally, is a sentence that ends with a proposition. <laughs> it's a young man's maiden speech. I, I heard of a young man who was called upon at a dinner once to give a, excuse me, these things just flash across my mind. Here as I talk, uh, he was giving a maiden's uh, speech at his wedding, and he had never talked before, but they said, you've got to say something. And he was very embarrassed, and to cover his embarrassment, he put his hand on the shoulder of his bride, and he began, this thing has been forced on me. <laughs> well, to get back to the subject. You see, if you're using a teleprompter, you never could break in that way because the teleprompter had already gone ahead on you. And if the young man were a metaphysician, he would say to the young woman, well, in a certain sense, yes. He said, I have asked him because the mere fact that I choose you, I negate all of them. Love is not only an affirmation, love is also a negation. And when I choose you, I am choosing what is perfect for me. And from now on, but the only freedom I want is the freedom to be your slave. That is the perfection of freedom. Freedom in love. Now in heaven, incidentally, there will be no freedom of choice. Did you know that? No freedom of choice. Why not? Because when you attain God, you're perfectly free. I mean, you're united with the perfect, and the perfect leaves nothing to choose. Just like the young man with a perfect woman. He doesn't want to choose anybody else. Now coming back to the divorce and the separation, our Western civilization has this kind of freedom. Freedom from restraint alone. And 
The result is that our Western freedom is almost a license. Instead of a freedom, our Western freedom, as we understand it today, is something like, well, a farmer, for example, who uh, is free to plant any vegetable he pleases. So, he plants uh, cabbages. Many decides they're not high half enough, so he plants cauliflower, because cauliflower is a cabbage with a college education. <laughs> and two weeks after he's done that, he uproots them, and he, he, he uh, plants some garlic. And he decides, no, this is terrible, because the people who eat this stuff never practice breath control. So he does away with that. Then he tears them up, and he plants onions. And then he's afraid they'll build you up physically and carry you down socially. So he uproots those, and then he plants some prunes. I mean, some plums. And then he gets worried that they'll turn into prunes someday, because after all, a prune is nothing but a worried plum. So he tears up the And he has no goal, no purpose. And so the modern world, instead of working toward an ideal, changes the ideal and calls it progress. Why we do not know precisely in our Western world why we are living. Why go on educating unless we know the purpose of a man? The essence of his freedom is not merely to be free from constraint. From violence, he must have some objective and goal and perfection in life. So we speak of freedom of speech, as if it meant that there could never be any limitation upon freedom of speech. Certainly there is a limitation. Freedom of speech has an objective and a goal, namely the communication of truth and knowledge. I am not entitled, for example, to freedom of speech if I should abuse anyone on television. It should be taken away from me. Freedom of speech does not mean the right to shout fire in a theater. And all of our freedoms have certain goals and certain purposes and objectives. The result is that our, the people of our Western world, simply because they do not know why they are living, they've never decided what they're going to do with their freedom, find it boring. They would like to surrender their responsibility. They're full of anxieties and worries, and there's nothing in life that is quite as boring as a purposeless existence. Simply because our Western civilization has not found the meaning and the purpose of life, simply because it concentrates upon freedom from something, our Western world is strong only in war and not in peace. It's strong only in war because it has the basic objective, at least, of defending our own existence, but it is not strong in peace because it has no unified faith. No universal goal, no universally recognized purpose in life. And if this is the error of our Western world, this is the error of communism. I tell you what communism has done. Communism has taken that perfection which belongs to God, that supreme love which takes away all choice because it's what the heart desires. And communism has taken, has taken that perfection of God and has transferred it to earth and communism says we are God we are perfection we take away your freedom of choice our materialistic atheistic society therefore does not give you the liberty to choose candidates it takes away the freedom of suffrage and the right of voting 
He does these things because we are final and we are absolute and we take the place of God. And that is why the Soviet Constitution in Article 125 states that the citizens of the Soviet Republic are entitled to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of press, on condition that they support the communist system. This is not a real freedom. It's only the freedom, freedom of perfection that belongs solely to God and not to a materialized society. But simply because they do have a purpose, they do have a goal, which is the wrong one, namely hate and world revolution, they are strong not only in war, they are strong in peace. Strong in peace because they know what they are after. They know the purpose of their philosophy. They are united upon goals. Their destinies indeed are wicked, but at any rate it unites them. So we may summarize, this is the condition of the world. Our Western civilization calls freedom the right to do whatever you please. That's the way you'll find almost everyone in the Western world defining it. Freedom does not mean the right to do whatever you please. Otherwise, it's a physical power, not a moral power. Certainly you can do whatever you please. You can turn a machine gun on your neighbor's chicken. You can stuff Aunt Lucy's mattress with old Gillette razor blades. <laughs> if freedom is only physical power, then only the strong are free. And because this resulted in a chaos and a crisscross of individual egotisms, communism came along and they said, no, freedom is the right to do whatever you must. And so, Frederick Engels said, the co-founder of communism, he said, you hold a stone in your hand and you drop it. That stone is free to fall in obedience to the law of gravitation. And so he says, you are free only on condition that you obey the law of the dictator. This is freedom of an end without the freedom of choice. And the end is materialistic instead of divine. Our Western civilization is like the pendulum separated from a clock. This is the clock without a pendulum. And what is the true meaning of friend, of truth? True meaning of, of freedom, rather, is freedom is the right to do whatever you want. Whatever you want. And oftenness implies law implies purpose, and a purpose and a law attained through freedom of choice. For example, I am free to draw a triangle only on condition that I give it three sides. I have to obey the law of a triangle. I'm free to draw a giraffe only on condition I give it a long neck. If I give it a short neck, I'm fine that I'm not free to draw a giraffe at all. If in a stroke of broad-mindedness I give a square five sides, I'm not free to draw a square. Freedom implies some oftness and some law. And we are free in that law. Very free within it. As a matter of fact, we obey the traffic laws, we're free to drive. The more a man knows about golf, I'm not a golfer, but I know something about it. The more a man knows about the laws of golf and how to hold a club the more free he is to play it. I remember about eight or ten years ago playing golf with someone, and I was always out in the rough, and I came back. Finally got on the green after 48 shots. He said to me, why didn't you write? 
So our blessed Lord said, is the truth that makes you free. Namely, there must be some end, some goal. Believe me, the more you understand truth, the more you understand the truth of science, the more free you are to be a scientist. The more you understand the truths of the law of God, the more free you are to live and to enjoy life. The laws and the commandments of God are not restrictions of human liberty. When you, for example, buy a, an admiral refrigerator, there are some directions that come with it. One of the directions says, plug it in. Suppose you say, no, I'm not going to have admiral telling me what to do with it. <laughs> I have a right to do whatever I please, and I will not plug it in. You're not free to have a refrigerator. You can see, therefore, the tragedy of freedom in the world. God might have made another kind of world than this. Sure. He might have made a world of necessity, so that we would all be good with the same necessity that apple trees grow at. He might have made a world in which we would all be virtuous, as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. God decided to make a free world. And freedom is a risk. It is a terrible risk. Educators, teachers take a risk whenever they let their children out for recess. Parents take a risk when they give their children freedom. And God took a risk. What a risk. When he made man free. And yet, in his infinite wisdom, he knew that it was better to make this universe a veil of character making, a moral universe. But how could he make it moral? Unless he made us free. That was the condition. Man can be virtuous only in a society where it is possible for him to be vicious. Man can be a patriot only in a country where it is possible to be a traitor. One can be a saint only in a church where it is possible also to be a devil. No crowns of merit rest suspended over those who do not fight. They might all go out to enterprise unheeded and alone. Were there not some great moral issues at stake? And therefore God chose to make it possible for us to revolt against his will. And when he gave man human freedom, he will never, never, never to take it back. Never. Do you know what hell is? Hell is the eternal guarantee of human freedom. Man with a clenched fist can raise it eternally in the air and say, non serviam. With own misery and unhappiness, which is free each other. So he will never to take it back. Because he knew that there would be goodness produced out of all this evil in his own divine way, just as, as the patient submission to evil in this world produces good as we exchange a blessing for a curse and charity to those who hate and despise and ridicule us. 
though it is possible indeed for evil men to commit foul crimes in this earth. The universe never became meaningless with it all because one day he came into this world of ours and took upon himself a human nature and allowed himself to be visited with all of the effects of evil. He submitted himself to the free acts of man, to all of us. And what was the worst thing that free men could do? How could they most abuse their freedom? They could most abuse their freedom not by killing babes, not by bombing cities. They could most abuse freedom by slaying goodness itself. In that moment, evil was strongest. It was canopied in its greatest might. And yet, evil then went down to defeat through the glory of the resurrection. And from that time on, it became possible for all men to submit every now and then to the evil of the world, knowing that united with this divine goodness, there would eventually come a great victory and a great peace. And those who understand freedom then realize that the greatest peace comes from obedience to his will. And the greatest freedom that there is in this world is the freedom to be a saint. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336 or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you again for joining me for this hour of reflection. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed that uh, talk entitled Freedom, and I love how Bishop Sheen at the end said, we possess the freedom to become saints, and I hope you're all striving to become saints. But uh, one way to become a saint is we'd learn, we need to learn how to pray and pray well. And so Bishop Sheen is going to teach us that now in the Catechism lesson on prayer. So please uh, enjoy. Peace be to you. Many look on prayer in somewhat the same fashion as an aviator may look on a parachute. He hopes that he will never have to use it. 
but it may come in handy in case he has to bail out. Prayer as our blessed Lord talked about it and taught it was something quite different. Let us first of all see how prayer was used in his own life. There are four great heads under which our blessed Lord spoke of prayer. First of all, his prayers were at the great events of his life. He prayed at his baptism. He prayed before he chose the twelve apostles. He prayed also before Peter made the confession of his divinity. He prayed at the transfiguration. He prayed in Gethsemane. He prayed on the cross. And in addition to these great events of his life, he prayed also in the course of his ministry. He prayed, for example, before the great conflict with the temple authorities. He prayed before giving the apostles the Lord's Prayer. He prayed when the Greeks came to him. And he prayed after feeding the 5,000. In addition to these two special headings of prayer, he also prayed at his miracles. He prayed, for example, when he healed the multitude, when he fed the 5,000, when he healed the deaf-mute, and when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And then in a fourth category, there were prayers that he said for others. He prayed for the eleven. He prayed for the whole church. He prayed for those who nailed him to the cross. And in a very special way, he prayed for Peter. Now taking out all that he said about prayer, what is prayer? Well, the best definition of prayer is that it is a lifting of the mind and the heart to God. To make it more simple, prayer is a dialogue. Man breaks silence in two ways. A dialogue with his fellow man and a dialogue with God. My dialogue with a fellow man is a proof that he is a person and so am I. The same is implied in a dialogue with God. And both of these dialogues are fulfilled in the two commandments. Love God and love neighbor. Turn over the pages of sacred scripture. What do you find? You find a record of men to whom God has spoken. And you'll also find a record of men who listened to him. In other words, scripture is fulfilled in concrete living dialogues. Now, men do not always want that dialogue with God. Sometimes they seek it, 
Other times they flee from it. At one time they desire it. At another time they fear it. Adam was afraid when God called him in the garden. Cain was afraid when God spoke to him. Moses was afraid before the burning bush. When you and I have a dialogue with God, what makes it up? One thing that makes it up is, first of all, a consciousness of our own sin. And the other is the voice of God urging us to confess it, to seek his mercy. One voice crushes, the other delivers life. One of the most beautiful examples of dialogue in scripture is that between St. Paul and our Lord, the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And everything that St. Paul wrote after that was nothing but a dialogue in which he was there unengaged. And God's answer always was, my grace is sufficient for thee. Now, we said that prayer is the lifting of the heart and mind of God. Notice we said nothing so much about the emotions. Why not? Well, because prayer really does not have very much to do with sensations or emotions or feelings. It's not a feeling in the stomach, just as it is not a pain in the stomach. It is not a capricious feeling, something that makes us purr on the inside. It has nothing to do with the animal part of us. It is not in the glands. It is in the intellect. It is in the will. It is in the heart. As embracing a love of truth, which belongs to the intellect, and also a resolve and a determination to grow in love, which is one of the acts of the will. We do not therefore pray because we feel like it. Sometimes our prayers are much better when we do not feel like praying. St. Francis de Sales said, An ounce of desolation is of greater worth than a pound of consolation. And very often in prayer we do not have a deep sense of the presence of God. I say sense referring it to the biological or emotional part of our lives. Really, we are very much like children that are carried in mother's arms. If we are carried in our Lord's arms, we rarely see his face, but we know it is there. Prayer, then, is an intercourse between a created spirit and the uncreated spirit, which is God. It is a communion a conversation, an adoration, a penance, a happiness, a work, a rest, and asking, a submission. It has many, many forms. Some belonging to beginners and others belonging to great saints. 
For example, there's vocal prayer, what we say with our lips. And there's meditation, which is a kind of a spiritual daydream or reverie. Then there is the higher contemplation of saints, which is an effective union with God. In vocal prayer, we go to God on foot. In meditation, we go to God on horseback. And in contemplation, we go to God in a jet. It may be asked, why should we pray? Well, why breathe? We have to take in fresh air and get rid of bad air. We have to take in new power and get rid of our old weaknesses. We pray because we are orchestras and we always need a tune-up. Just as a battery sometimes runs down and needs to be charged, so we have to be renewed in spiritual vigor. Our blessed Lord said, Without me you can do nothing. Oh yes, we can eat and drink and we can sin, but we cannot do anything toward our supernatural merit and heaven without him. We happen to live in a conditional universe, and because we fulfill certain conditions, and certain effects are produced. For example, if you strike a match, it will light. That's the condition. So, too, there are millions and millions of favors hanging from heaven on silken cords. And prayer is the sword that cuts them. Our real strength comes from without, not within. Light is not in the eye. It is in the sun. Sound is not in the ear. It is in something outside of us. The sun uses the eye. Music uses the ear. And God uses us in prayer. When we pray, we get into a new environment of love. It is something like the difference between a child in a nice family and a waif. A waif of the, of the streets has no guarantee of security, for example, food and clothing and shelter. Because the child is not in an environment of love, such as the child in a family. When we pray, we put ourselves under God's love. And hence we receive blessings which otherwise we would not receive. Now this is something very much to keep in mind in family life. Those, for example, who are raising children and never put themselves in God's care and providentially trust him are not receiving the blessings of those who know that when God gives a child 
He will also provide for it. That brings us to some concrete suggestions about prayer. The first is this. In prayer, do not do all the talking. If you went into a doctor's office, you would not rattle off the symptoms and then rush out. How did you learn to speak the English language? You learned to speak by listening, did you not? How does a scientist learn the laws of nature? By imposing laws upon nature? No, he sits down passively before nature and says to nature, Now you reveal to me your secrets. So we are not constantly to be yapping in prayer. Sacred scripture says, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. We often change that. And we say, listen, Lord, thy servant speaketh. Prayer is not a one-way street. It is a boulevard. In prayer, therefore, we must not only speak, we must also listen. God talks to us. and more in meditation than in vocal prayer. A second suggestion. Petition is a very valid form of prayer, but do not make all your prayers prayers of petition. In other words, let not the attitude before God be, give me, give me this, give me that. What would a young man think of a girl who constantly said, give me this mink coat, give me this ring, send me these flowers? Is it not true that when you love, you are embarrassed when anyone asks, what do you want? The more you love, in a certain sense, the less you want. Now this does not mean to say, God forbid, that we must not pray for certain favors from God. We will speak of that later on. Because petition is an essential part of prayer. The point we are making is that it is not all prayer. It is not the perfect prayer. Therefore, think of other forms of prayer besides asking. Thirdly, When you pray, do not think that God is reluctant about giving you favors. You must not think that God acts toward you in somewhat the same way that some people act toward a beggar. If they see a beggar on the other side of the street, well, they will turn a corner perhaps to get rid of him. God is a loving father. As soon as we begin praying, he does not turn a deaf ear to us. Think, therefore, of your relationship to God in somewhat the same way as the relationship of a child to a father. 
And that is the way our blessed Lord told us to pray. When in the Our Father, which contains seven petitions, he began with Our Father. A fourth suggestion. There are liturgical prayers. There are indulgence prayers. They should always be favored. But in your private devotions, you should try to remember that your prayer should be your prayer. Do do not let all of your prayers be like circular letters. When you get a circular letter, do you not sometimes put it in a wastebasket? Why do not you pray out of your own heart? Your heart has problems like no one else in the world. It has certain worries and hopes, agonies and fears and weaknesses. And these constitute the content of your prayer. And your prayer will come out of them. You will be a person who is praying. Our blessed Lord said that he calls his sheep by name. In other words, we are individual before him. Our blessed Lord turned to the thief and addressed him in the second person singular. Thou, this day Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Let therefore your prayer be personal. Even when you say certain indulgence and liturgical prayers, hearken to God. Be attentive to him. If you were not attentive to him as a person, how can you expect him to hearken to you? If you look around when someone else is in the room whom you ought to be addressing, do you feel that you have a claim upon his favors? And so it is with God. Pray out of your heart. And fifth, every now and then, cut out the dead wood of prayer. Over a long period of time, you will fall into certain habits. In certain routines. And you become so used to them that they lack fervor. Do not be afraid to say, all right, I'm going to get out of this jungle. I'm going to start all over again. God will not be angry with you. As a matter of fact, such an attitude may freshen your prayers, make you much more personal. Another suggestion. Always let the motive of your prayer be love. St. Augustine once said, Give me a man who is loved and I will tell him what God is. Whatever lovers say to one another, that you say to God. And think not therefore of your relationship to him as being that of a servant to a master, as a lover to the beloved. And seven, keep all of your prayers fresh by praying out of your heart, 
by praying out of the inspiration of love. Then your prayers will be something like a fourth century lyric which a husband by the name of Ausonius wrote to his wife. Wife, let us live as we have lived nor ever lose the little names that were the first night's grace. It takes a great deal of effort in marriage to keep up the freshness of love. Sacrifices have to be sprinkled through a marriage. And so to every now and then when love becomes routine, we freshen it by a sacrifice. No one ever rises to a higher level of love without a death to a lower one. And finally, do not let all of your prayers be like blueprints which you bring to God and then ask him to rubber stamp. Remember that God has an intelligence and a plan of your own life, which is far better than the one you have. Little baby may cry for taffy, but the mother will not give the baby taffy. A boy of six wants a shotgun, but the father will not give the boy of six a shotgun. There are some things that are not good for us. And God's answer to prayer sometimes is no. A little girl once prayed for a thousand dollars for Christmas. And her unbelieving father said to her, On Christmas, well, God didn't answer your prayers, did he? And the little girl said, yes. God said, no. So when you pray to God, say something like this. I mean in petitionary prayer. Dear Lord, there's something I want. I need it badly. I hope I want it for thy glory. I hope it's best for my salvation. You know what it is. Maybe it is not good for me. Or else you would have given it to me long before this. But just in case you're waiting for me to ask you again, well, I'm asking for it. You will know best what to do. And in conclusion, may we suggest two special forms of prayer. One, the rosary, and two, silence and meditation. First of all, the rosary. The rosary is almost like words with music. It combines the physical, moving of the beads through the fingers, the mental, the meditation on the joyful and the sorrowful and the glorious mysteries of our Lord and his Blessed Mother. And finally, something vocal, namely saying our prayers with our lips. There was once a young lady who said to me, I think a, I think a rosary is monotonous, and I don't think God likes it. For us to say monotonous prayers. 
I said to her, who's that man with you? She said, that's my fiancé. I said, do you love him? She said, yes. I said, how does he know? Well, she said, I told him. What did you say? I said, I love you. When did you tell him? Last night. Did you ever tell him before? She said, yes, I told him the night before. Well, don't you think he tires of it? Isn't it a bit monotonous? No. Saying that we love is never monotonous because we say it in a new moment of time and in a new place. And so it is with our rosary. And finally, silence. Take out at least a half an hour a day. Live above yourself. Live within yourself. Have an inward solitude. Fulfill the words of John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. And in the language of St. Paul, you will say that your life is hidden with Christ in God. Through prayer, contemplation, you can say, as St. Bernard said, to Pope Eugenius, to his esto ubique, always belong to yourself, and then you will belong to God. God love you. Stories of the world. And oh, did he cry? Do you think he cares if, if I tell him things? Just little things that happen. And do angels' wings make a noise? Can he hear me if I speak low? Does he understand me now? Tell me, for you know. Lovely lady dressed in blue. Teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. Hello, Radio Maria family. Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen was a master communicator with an unforgettable voice and ability to communicate the message of Christianity to all peoples. He was a Catholic priest with a tremendous knowledge of Catholic theology. We've been blessed to share his recordings through the generosity of our good friends at FultonSheen.com. I would ask you to visit their website to download hundreds of MP3 talks by the great Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Please visit them at www.FultonSheen.com and there you can enjoy the voice of the Master Preacher of Christ who touched the lives of millions worldwide with his warmth, wisdom, and humor. So please visit FultonSheen.com to start enjoying your own collection of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen recordings. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear Radio Maria family, our hour has come to an end, and it seems like every week the hour just flies by. And uh, so I would ask you to pray for us and know that we will pray for you. And so until next time, 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.